All right, Josh Smith here at my studio, live from Flat 5. Uh, my guest today is a great guitar player, singer, writer, artist. I've known him for a while, even though we don't actually ever cross paths. We talk about it quite often, <laughs> but it, it never really happens. That's the way it is in, in this world a lot of the times. Uh, you may have seen him play with Greg Allman, but he's also got many, many great solo albums. Um, he's, he's toured with a lot of people, some friends of ours. We've actually done the same gig before. Uh, but, man, he's a great, great guitar player. He also teaches on True Fire. Uh, and I, he's in New York right now. I want to thank him for his time. Everybody welcome Scott Sherrard. Hey, man, thanks for having me today. I, I love the program, man. It's good to see <laughs> you staying busy. Well, that's what it's all about these days, right? Staying busy so that you stay, stay sane. It's, it's half the reason I'm doing all this stuff is just to keep myself busy. How about you? Yeah, I mean, you got that beautiful studio, too, so it's, it's good you're putting it to use in as many ways as you can. It's, it's a good time to have that, you know? Yeah, well, I mean, it's funny. Nobody wants to come over, so I'm just, like, I'm just here by myself all the time. Yeah. Wait, you, need, you need some of those $5 COVID tests, man. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Man, where do you get those $5 COVID tests? I'd like to, I'd like to have them by the door. <laughs> the I keep reading about them, but I, I know there's like a, the, the Joe Rogan podcast. They test everybody who comes in. I'm sure theirs aren't $5, but um, Probably not. You, know, you basically go in and I guess, I don't know what, they have like a candy bowl and you take a nose swab and you wait 15 minutes and then you go in and life goes yeah. on as normal. I'm sure they're on Craigslist. I'm sure, I'm sure I can find them. <laughs> <laughs> oh man well dude for for the people not familiar with your story i know you were born in michigan and you spent your formative years in milwaukee i know you played the up and under pub which is where i played as a kid the first time i went to milwaukee um oh my god i didn't everybody... know you played there man oh yeah that's amazing yeah. i was probably oh, amazing i think i was probably 15 or 16 the first time i played at the up and under pub and there that's was another I was place probably, i mean we're what was the other place? Yeah, uh, we're about Sandy's uh, pastime. Well, Sandy's Shank Hall. Was there Sandy's National Pastime? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember it. There was then there was all the other sort of joints like uh, the place I used to play in every uh, every week with Stokes was a uh, Mamie's. If you remember, okay. that was like out in the you know out in the suburbs of Milwaukee. But the up and under, my my band ended up playing there and i think we're probably about the same age i think so i'm 41 it's funny I, I was 41 yeah so i'm two years older than you but when i was 15 i was playing in the up and under all the time and then by my later teens i was playing there every thursday with my band yeah well so so then let's let's rewind there um i'm always curious you know and everybody says well everybody asks the same questions but whatever it's important how the guitar ends up in your hands it's like for me my family were not musicians it was just complete happenstance that my dad bought me a guitar i guess he wanted a musician you know in the family how did it end up for you what's a musical family or no musical family yeah i mean uh it, it would be an understatement to call my family a musical family in terms of like it was just records all the time my dad's a guitar player singer songwriter um he grew up, you know, playing in bands in Detroit in the 60s. So it was like, you know, Beatles outfits and Beatles guitars playing nothing but like R&B and soul music with the amps on 10. So <laughs> that, was, that was how he started. But then he saw Bob Dylan play 
at Michigan State University, and he saw him. He actually, the story he tells is that Dylan went on, and halfway through the set, he said, I'm going to play you guys a song I just wrote. It's called Blown in the Wind. And I guess at the end of that concert, this, the story goes with my dad that he sold his, uh, his vintage, what would now be a vintage SG and Super Reverb, and got uh, a couple Guild acoustics and a Martin 00018, which I have now. It was a 61. Um, and he went fully acoustic. So he was playing, you know, my dad, you know, he was, he had offers to be managed and he was out in LA trying to get a record deal in the sixties and seventies and it just didn't pan out for him. So he ended up having to work a bunch of odd jobs and move around. But um, growing up, you know, especially in my earlier years in Michigan, you know, he would just be playing in the living room, playing acoustic guitar, playing all kinds of great music. Um, everything from Bob Dylan, Jesse Cohen Young, um, you know, John Hammond Jr. type stuff, and then into the older blues stuff like Lead Belly and, um, you know, Lightning Hopkins and a lot of Jimmy Reed and Chuck Berry. And, and that's what really hooked me. And basically one day I grabbed one of those acoustics and I just, he just taught me, you know, the Jimmy Reed. He just taught me that. And then he, you know, over the course of weeks, I learned all three versions of that so I could play a 12-bar <laughs> blues. Yeah. And I think there was one day where he busted out and started playing a solo and I realized I played, I played behind him. I said, I, I remember that moment. I was about 10 and I said, I said, this is the greatest feeling on earth when I'm playing rhythm guitar and somebody's expressing themselves and we're making music. And for me, that was totally, that was like the big bang, the 12 bar blues right away. Oh yeah. Those, those little moments when it becomes not just only that you get something under your fingers and it's like, oh, my God, I got this. Like, it's really that feeling. But the first time you actually even play with anyone else besides yourself and do something at the same time that works is, like, just mind-blowing. It's like you'll never go back after that. It's, you know, it, there's before and after that moment. <laughs> that Jimmy Reed thing, too. I mean, I've had, you know, and I, as I told you, you know, as we were getting set up here, I've been teaching a lot this year because of all the gigs being gone. Um, so I've been working like 20 hours a week and it's, it's, it's amazing to watch, you know, sometimes I'll get these players who can just play the most incredible stuff, some stuff that I can't even play. And they don't even know that Jimmy Reed rhythm pattern. They've, they've never yeah. even investigated the, the first position of the guitar. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, you know, but that's one of life's greatest joys is learning those kind of things. Cause it just shows you the beauty and simplicity. You know, you've got to have both sort of, you know, it's a yin and yang thing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, okay. So another question I'm always curious about in the like initial upbringing and the, the learning. So you had your dad that lit your spark and you had guitars around the house. Um, did you have any music at school? Well, yeah, when I got to high school, I did. Uh, so I got okay. into, when my family moved to Milwaukee, I got into high school of the arts right away. And that was pretty much like the greatest thing you could imagine as a teenager playing music. I mean, I was, you know, I was hanging out, you know, meeting girls in the art department. And then I was mm -hmm. spending six hours a day playing in the jazz room with all these incredible musicians who are all now professional musicians and still yeah. friends of mine, lifelong friends. One of them being my friend, Sean Hinton, who's been with Mary J. Blige for like 20 years now. But Sean, uh, was like a mentor to me who was, he's, he was a year younger than me, but he was a mentor to me. He taught me all about um, 
all the guitar drive Baptist church stuff. You know, Spanky oh, wow. was uh, Spanky Chalmers Offord was his uncle, and oh, and wow. so I learned all the Spanky stuff from Sean. So I had that, but then my my the guest professors at the school, the guys who would come in and teach. Uh, during the week on off days and stuff were, you know, Gerald Cannon, who played bass with Elvin Jones Jazz Machine. So I, I met Gerald and Gerald would take me down to Chicago to Joe Siegel's and he would set me up on stage behind Elvin Jones, you know, and they'd play a gig and I'd have Elvin like sweating on me when I was like 15, all thanks to Gerald teaching at my school. Um, and then Mel Ryan, West Montgomery's organist. Um, wow. So, and I ended up doing a lot of pickup gigs with Mel around town because mel used to like to play blues piano too not just organ uh mm. you know most people obviously know him from playing organ on the west montgomery stuff which yeah uh but anyway so those those guys were teaching at my school and then the up and under was like a salon the jam session was crazy you know hubert someone hung out there all the time and luther allison would come hang when he was off the road um and i got to play with a bunch of guys from that scene like i used to do play with big eye willie smith at coco's jam session who i met through them and there was an incredible scene in Milwaukee, but the school was great. Well, that's, yeah, Milwaukee is so close enough in proximity to Chicago that you had a lot of guys who would live in Milwaukee and drive to Chicago or vice versa, and there was a lot of crossover there. But uh, the school thing is interesting to me because it, it mirrors my path, I guess, a little bit. I had been playing again since, like you, like since I was six, seven, doing my own thing, kind of learning what I could, and then I took some lessons. But then when I got to high school, to be around a bunch of other people my age who were – I went to a performing arts school like you, and it was like, wow, that was a big kick in the pants because I'd never been around people my age who were even into it at all. And they weren't into the music I was into, and there wasn't actually a lot of jazz in my school. It was like – it was weird. It was a magnet school. It had like a pop music program, a rock band, um, classical stuff, but there wasn't really a jazz program in the school, which was weird. But, but even just being around music every day and having music classes or having to even carry my guitar to school, I think was a big part of just even further ingraining in me. This is what I'm doing. This is like, it's it, you know? Well, yeah, and I was, I was you know, I was joking about, you know, going, going and hanging out in the art department to meet girls. But it's like before that, you know, I was a completely awkward, totally ostracized kid at every school I was at where yeah. the quarterback was the dude and I was terrible oh, yeah. at sports and pe nobody understood why I was playing this music or listening to this music. And then I got there and it was like overnight I found my people. It was crazy. Oh, dude, in middle school, I was the only kid with long hair. In high school, half the kids, <laughs> half the dudes had long hair. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the absolutely. cool thing about Milwaukee High School of the Arts, MHSA, too, was you know, it was a, it was an inner city program. So, you know, it was really 75% minority. And it, for me being like a middle-class white kid, and I lived on the east side of Milwaukee, which was kind of like, I guess now it would be like, it's where the Whole Foods is. Back then, you know, we okay. had like whatever the mom and pop version of that was. Right. But, you know, I was kind of, you know, I was living in a nicer part of town. And it was like getting to, getting to really, um, just forged these lifelong friendships with people who were my neighbors and also who I probably never would have met in my life if it hadn't been for the school. It gave yep. me the most incredible education, man. I just, I will be forever grateful for that school. That's funny, man. That's very, we have a lot in common in those regards. So my high school was also in, in the middle of downtown Fort Lauderdale, inner city. It was like, yeah, 90%, uh, you know, black high school. And 
that that was why they made it a magnet school to try to get other you know other people into that school but most of the friends who have stuck with me from that school for for lifelong friends were friends not actually from the arts program but friends who were just at that school anyways who i made which has been interesting actually I, some a lot like you like you a lot of my friends are still professional musicians from that school but there was also there was a lot of dancers in my school uh arts acting all that stuff and a lot of them have gone on to do cool stuff which is cool but whatever <laughs> yeah i mean it's really it's a really important and you know now, now it's like we're in this time where it's like, uh, you, you, you know, you and I were obviously we were, I, I think we may have even been beneficiaries of the same uh, federal money because um, I know that, you know, and, and the program in Milwaukee was underwritten by um, uh, Mike Cudahy, who was a multimillionaire um, and, and Cudahy was a huge jazz fan and he poured a ton of money into the school. Um, and I think, you know, now you know, especially we're seeing, I mean, the whole reason that, you know, I saw a documentary on the invention of hip hop and, you know, and it's controversial where it started, but it certainly could have been the Bronx or Queens. A lot of, you know, and I saw a lot of the inventors of the music in the documentary talking about how the music programs were so decimated by the fact that the city and the federal budgets, especially the federal budgets cut by Ronald Reagan, uh, just decimated the music program that they basically just ended up back at the house with the turntable. And that's kind of how the turntable turned into an instrument. Uh, necessity being the mother of invention and, and yeah. you know, and uh, it's just uh, that music program, I can't tell you how important it was for, for all of us, no matter if we could yeah. afford a guitar or not, you know, just to be able to go to school and there were all these, you know, Fender tube amplifiers and keyboards and drum sets <laughs> and we'd have two hours a day where we could do whatever we want. You know, we'd go in there and we'd work on you know, memorizing like shit off the Grant Green Alive record or Maceo Parker nice. Live on Planet Groove was popular with all of us and like uh, the Parliament Funkadelic shit. You know, we spent a lot of time just getting away with murder because the rest of the time we had to learn like the Jamie Abersold program. You know, we were learning yeah, all course. the bebop stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 All the same charts that were going around every school in the whole country. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> ja yeah. Jamie was a big fan of our of our band in the school, actually. He gave... He used to come through town and he gave us a bunch of these little awards that he would make and stuff. That's cool, man. I remember going into my band director's room and he was like, let's find a new chart to, to play this week. And I opened his filing cabinet and it was like charts just covered in dust. And it was, you know, on Green Dolphin Street and whatever. But they were just, just, just so old. It was unbelievable. Yeah. But it was every school I've been to has the same stash of charts. Yeah. Well, the main so. the main professor there, Cliff Cliff Gribble, who's now retired, um, he and I were always having a war because I was, you know, I was so cocky because I was so so obsessed with blues and soul and rock and roll music and the jazz that I loved was like the organ combo jazz and yeah. stuff. I, yeah. I I was always, you know, I was just I, I was into getting, you know, playing melodies and getting people moving and stuff and. Cliff, bless his heart, I mean, he was all about, like, some really, really deep shit. I mean, he was really into, like, you know, uh, Benny Carter and, and uh, Gil Evans and stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. and, and, you know, it just wasn't getting through to the kids, and it certainly wasn't getting through to me. And I, I, I do have some regrets about not studying more when I was there. I was definitely a little bit of a pain in his ass. But the thing was is I had a good enough feel that I could get away with being in the top band, so I kind of cheated yeah. my way through it. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah say well you were already gigging at that time so you had you know a little bit of uh experience being around adults and playing and yeah you started to get your feel together and it was the same i was working already playing gigs every weekend and so it was like at school i felt like i didn't want to be told you know how to play i was starting to try to find my own voice i guess already which sounds ridiculous looking back on it but yeah i i, <laughs> I, feel, I always felt like i should have maybe taken a little bit more seriously some of the deeper lessons they were trying to teach you know but i was just always waiting for that moment when they finally bring out the squib cakes chart for big band <laughs> yeah that's the shit man yeah they well, i got i picked it up when i when i got to new york vic Jur you remember vic juris yeah absolutely i had a fr i had a friend who told me i should go see him and i had i i hadn't even learned to read music in high school if you could believe oh, that wow. i had everyone would just Half, half the band were all ear players. So what we mm -hmm. do is half the band could read and the half of the band that could read, they couldn't improvise as well as we could. So, so they teach us everything <laughs> in the yeah. off hours. You know, we'd learn by ear. But then when I got with Vic, you know, I sat down with Vic and he was so incredible, man. I said, I was about 20 when I moved to New York and I sat down with him and, and took a lesson with him at the new school. And, uh, you know, he's like, oh, let's play this. We played, you know, a tune with changes and he's just like, He's like, man, that's that's not happening. And he goes, let's play a blues. And they played, then we played a blues. And we got to the end of the blues. And he goes, he goes, all right, look. He's like, just get these two books. And he scribbled down these two William Levitt books for me, and um, this Charlie Christian book. And he just goes, just learn all this. You're going to be fine. Don't come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. All right. So you you ended up in New York. But what was the thought process when you finished high school? Um, what were your parents kind of leaning on you to do? What were you, what were you thinking? I mean, obviously you, you probably decided right away, this is what you're doing. You're already doing it basically. Um, was, was college a thing? Uh, do your parents want you to go to college? Uh, I'm always curious about that. Like my parents were cool with whatever my grandparents were not, but they got over it. I'm curious how it worked for you. Um, I, you know, my, my life was kind of like, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, not, not to get too down a Freudian rabbit hole here, but I think that, you know, once, once, my, once my parents realized that I was going to be able to do it, that just became their obsession. Like, because my dad was never able to get over the hump and have a career. So, sure. you know, my, my teen years, I was kind of like a little blues Glenn Gould or something. They would, you know, just take me everywhere. Yeah. And, but I, I didn't really ever go for it. And I think what stopped me was I, I met a kid when I was, when I was about 13 or 14, um, who just got me into like the beatniks and it started with like Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs. And then I just kept going and going and going. And then I got into like Tom Waits and got really heavily into like Leonard Cohen and Bob Dylan. And I started to realize, I started to draw this connection between my favorite bands who, ironically were were the Almond Brothers and Little Feet who are going to see in the summers and now I, I don't know if you knew this but like since last November when Paul passed away I'm now a member of Little Feet as well I so it's like that, yeah. and and when I saw you know when I saw a picture of Will George and I heard Waiting for Columbus I said this is what I want to do with my life and to me the defining principle to all of it was for this was just my journey was I felt like well, if I can't ever be in a band where there's a great singer and great songs, there's no point in playing the guitar well. 
And I, that's, I started that when I was like 12, 13 years old. I got this thing in my head that I've got to figure out, you know, the, 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 the unifying element. So at first I didn't really sing. And then like, like a lot of people, I get to the point where I realize I either don't want to deal with a singer or, you know, if I don't start singing, nothing's going to happen. And then I started doing that first and then playing covers and playing blues and, you know, my, my band, the Chesterfield Kings in Milwaukee, who had that every Thursday gig, we played nothing but the records I would find when I would like go to New Orleans or Chicago. So we would play shit off. We played all the meters shit. We played, right. you know, Grant Green shit, Bobby Womack, Tyrone Davis, uh, Little Milton. We learned all this stuff and it was like packed with college kids and they thought we wrote all these songs. This is so far before the internet, right? So it started with that and I, and, I, and I eventually, once I got to New York, I really started to push myself as a singer and a songwriter even farther. But for me, that's, I always had that sort of diamond in my mind of like, okay, I'm working on all this shit. I'm gonna learn this solo note for note. I'm gonna get a good sound. But like, if I don't have a vision for what it's gotta be, I can't make it. And I, I never really leaned into the virtuoso thing as a result of that. I just never, it, I had a self-consciousness about it because there honestly, even in Milwaukee in the nineties, there were so many kids who could play exactly like Stevie Ray Vaughan that I got to the point where I was just like, am I gonna do that? Or am I gonna try to write some songs and try to do something? And honestly, it was a much harder path because there was, there was a time when there were managers coming to my gigs and you know, I was being offered deals and stuff. And I was literally just not going with it. I was just being a jerk about it. Probably just to rebel against what I was being fostered to be. And um, I've, I've had as many moments in the business that cut myself off at the knees as I have making strides. Uh, but I wasn't good enough for me. That was the thing. I couldn't, for me, it was like, if I'm going to play a show, I got to have a song and I got to sing and I got to have that. And until I have that, I'm not going to take it to the next level. You know, right. <laughs> it's probably a stupid move, but. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, at least you kind of knew yourself and you knew where you wanted to end up. Maybe you didn't know how you were going to get there, but you, you were at least on the path, you know, which is always interesting like when you find which way you're supposed to go so what made you go to new york then what was the impetus behind that uh a cheap apartment <laughs> so <laughs> i i was in milwaukee you know living in a in a house with four other musicians that was you know like a six bedroom house where i was paying like 200 dollars a month you know sure yeah and i was playing you know 15 20 200 300 gigs a month i mean i was i had my car paid off i was living the life um but you know, I, I had my friend, Sean Dixon, who I went on to form this band, the Chesterfields with, which was the outgrowth of, of the band that we had in Milwaukee. Um, he found this, he, he had found this friend in New York and uh, we were both in Milwaukee at the time. And we together found this rent controlled place on 13th Street, First Avenue in the East Village. And I had my bag, bags packed to go to New Orleans. I had another friend who'd moved there and I've been going there regularly since I was 16. But, um, you know, just happened to find this place. And I said, you know what, fuck it. If I can live in the East Village, let's go check it out. And that was the summer of 96. So I was 19 or 20, however, whatever the math is there. It's all a blur these days. Um, and, uh, you know, moved in 
ultimately moved into a five-floor walk-up in a cold water flat that was $1,500 a month. It was a giant three-bedroom, which even wow. at the time was almost unheard of. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you know, and I, I got there and I found out that Allen Ginsberg lived across the street and, uh, you know, it started... <laughs> You know, went started going to Bleecker Street, sitting in at Terra Blues, and there's Ahmed sure. Erdogan is sitting in the fucking booth smoking a cigarette. I got to know him. He was like a mentor. We had Bill Sims and Michael Powers and all these great local blues guys back then. You know, you could smoke in a bar. There were, you know, I started working pretty quick. It was a very different New York. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you ever play uh, Manny's Car Wash? I mean, that was, I remember coming up and playing Terra Blues, many but times. also Manny's, yeah, yeah. What many, was the guy's many, name many, many times. Manny's Car Wash? You know, I never booked the gig. I only worked there as a sideman. Um, but I did see that guy all the time at the bar. I used Trying to play to, there with like come to me in a second. different people. Yeah, he had gray hair. He yeah. kind of looked like Tom Dowd. Uh, Buddy Fox. Buddy Fox. That's it. That's yeah. it. Buddy Fox. He was a total character, total New York character. I remember coming to play... Uh, Manny's Car Wash, I think it was my first gig under my own name in New York. I was probably 16, and we got there the night before, and we got we sprung for hotels in the city, which was a giant splurge on the tour, like to stay in the I'll city. Bet. And the night before my gig, we saw Hiram Bullock with Willie <laughs> and Anton. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, that was, that was cool. I'm, I'm happy to be playing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was, the, that was the spot. You know, that and Dan Lynch Bar, which was around the corner from the apartment I moved into. But the irony was the week I moved into the apartment in the summer of 96 was the week that Dan Lynch Bar closed. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. man. There, but there were places, yeah, I mean, like the rest of the country, there were just much more places to play back then. I mean, my first tour was in between my... Jesus, my sophomore and junior year, I think, you know, we toured all around us when I played up and under. It's like we toured all around the country in a van. We just drove around with my dad, you know, like there was so many places to play. I think every weeknight was full. I don't think he could do that now. I mean, you can't do it at all right now, but the last 10 years, I don't think anybody's doing that in the States. I mean, I did a van tour with my solo band about two years ago, and I, I, I'm going to have... PTSD from that year for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be doing that anymore. Uh, I used to yeah. do it in my, in, in my mid twenties with some different acts and I, I, I'll, I'll never, I, we did, we did 150 shows with my trio and uh, they're, they're the most, they're, they're my best friends and we have this incredible tour manager, but I, I'll never, I'll never do it again. I, I can't do it. It's just uh you know, once once you get to a certain age, it's just it's not worth it. You know, there's part of that, and then and there's part that's just it's not actually worth it at all. Anyways, it's all for this. It's all for your heart and soul. It's like if dude, that's one thing the pandemic has shown me uh, that I didn't quite realize is man, almost none of my income comes from playing gigs. <laughs> And it's like, I would have, if, if you sat me down and asked me that question, I would have thought there's no way. Like most of my money comes from gigs, you know, not the case at all. Well, that's, and I, I'm with you, man. I mean, like that's, I've been really lucky in the Northeast because, you know, where we live in Harlem in New York City, uh, this, I'm at my mother-in-law's house in Woodstock here. We've been coming up on the weekends just to get out. But, um, you know, the, the Northeast is amazing. And 
you know, I spent almost a decade playing with Greg Allman and the East Coast was his breadbasket from Florida yeah. up to Maine. And it's the exact same for Little Feet. I mean, this, this touring circuit is insane. And the beautiful thing about New York is I can play the tri-state area all year. I can play 60, 70 gigs all year, every year in this area, and they all make good money. And yeah. what I do is I just switch up. What I'll do is I'll do a certain number of those shows will be Scott Sherrard band shows. Some of them will be solo acoustic. And then some of them will be these multi-artist guest shows we do, which is where we go to bigger rooms like the Brooklyn Bowl or the Cap, which was what we were going to do this year. But that's by having all those different like musical themes, repertoire, arranging, and then rooms, I can actually make it work here without having to go anywhere. And I've been doing it for the last year and a half. And it's like, honestly, it's the most money I've ever made playing music live is well, that's, doing that that's circuit cool. until, of course, the shutdown, you know? Well, it is a nice thing about the East Coast is the distances between cities is a little more manageable, and they don't cross over very much, a lot like being in Europe. And, you know, you could play a gig one night and only drive 100 miles or less, and it's totally different audiences, no overlap, you know, and that's, that's a nice thing about the East Coast for sure. Yeah, that's like last year we did a, we did a Fillmore East Allman Brothers Fillmore East album celebration with J-Mo from the Allman Brothers on drums and we put together a great band we did a sold out show at Brooklyn Bowl and then the next day we drove like you said 100 miles to Philly and we did another sold out show at the Ardmore and right. it's like we could have done we had an offer for a third one in Connecticut but we couldn't we weren't all available but the point is is like all those things are within a couple hours of each other and yep. it's like a fresh set of four or five hundred people it's crazy yep yep all right, so you moved to New York, and you've got your band, your Milwaukee guys, and you, you, you've been playing covers, all these soul covers. When do you start doing your own tunes? Almost as soon as I got to New York, I started writing in earnest. And um, we made, Sean Dixon and I met up with this bass player, Anthony Eagle, and we formed a trio, and we shortened it from Chesterfield Kings to the Chesterfields because there was already a punk rock band from Canada called the Chesterfield Kings, we found out. Because oh, we wow. started, we got to New York. Our first gig was at Old Kenny's Castaways. I don't know if you knew that place. I've never been there, but I've heard of it, yeah. It's pretty legendary. And the Kenny, Kenny would get pretty sauce, but he'd hang out at the end of the bar. Kenny was like uh, the road manager for hum Humble Pie. And uh, he's like an old UK rock dude. And uh, I went and sat in at a jam one night. And he was, you know, fucking 100 sheets to the wind. He came up to me. He's like, I want you to come play with your band. So we came and played. And we called the Chesterfield Kings and these, you know, two guys showed up and uh, it turned out that they were fans of this punk band from Canada and they wanted to beat the shit out of us. Uh, so then we, <laughs> then we changed, it's funny, I don't tell that story often enough, but anyway, um, we changed it to the Chesterfields and um, we made a demo and, I, and for that demo, I made a goal for myself to write three or four tunes and I did. And, uh, and this is, you know, I'm really gonna age myself now, but we made a cassette tape. <laughs> Of course, yeah. <laughs> Sold the cassette tape. This this is right when it was on that cusp. And then uh, a couple months later, we actually went in the studio, recut a couple. I had written a couple more songs, then we made our first CD. And so right away, pretty much, um, in terms of getting to New York, because I, you know, the whole goal was, you know, I'm going to get the hell out of, because in Milwaukee, I could have just stayed there and been, you know, the sort of Midwest dude for the rest of my life. I mean, I was set yeah. up for it. And I just... 
I mean, literally, man, I ended up becoming an office temp within the first year in New York. And I worked, I worked odd jobs in New York City for five years in temping. I ended up with a job at the Carlisle Hotel in the purchasing department from like mm -hmm. the age of like 21 to like 23 or four, I guess. Mm -hmm. And they actually, the guy I was working for retired and they wanted to make me the purchasing director. It was going to be a big job. And I said, if I take this fucking job, my career is over, you know, can't do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I did. I turned it down. They told me I was insane. Um, and, but then I started going on the road. So it, it all worked out. So what was the, uh, the first road work you were doing? Was it your own stuff or was it sideband stuff? Yeah, it was the Chesterfields. I mean, the, it was. The, the plan was for that. That band had a, had a really good, I guess they used to call it a development deal, but really it was a bunch of random Wall Street dudes who loved our band, who saw us play at like Terra Blues and Manny's Car Wash. And right. this is in the late 90s when people were just burning money pretty much. Sure. <laughs> so we had this huge budget. We went to Dangerous Studios. Um, we were making a record there at the same time as Rob Thomas. Rob Thomas became a huge fan of the band. Um, and, uh, you know, we ended up doing a bunch of touring, but nothing really ever came of the band. I mean, we, the local gigs we did in New York, we were like an eight piece band. I mean, we were very, very young and very idealistic. Right. You remember, uh, do you know Josh Dion? Uh, I know who he is. I don't know him personally, but yeah, I know who he is. I'd love to hear you guys play together man i mean you you guys like you guys would make incredible music but josh is one of my favorite musicians but he if you know his you know people know his people know his stuff now but we're, we're again we're all in the same age group and he had a band we both had bands at the up and under that had sort of dueling residencies and we were big fans of each other's bands and we both had these huge fucking totally ridiculous unaffordable bands <laughs> yeah <laughs> unsustainable take completely unrealistic <laughs> Yeah, but fun. Yeah. 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 Oh, they were really, really, really good bands. I mean, these, and of course, these musicians of all, every one of these musicians in his and my band have all gone on to have like great careers. But, yeah. you know, we, we were all very young and idealistic and the Chesterfields thing was very much in that. But we made a record called Henry Street Soul, which came out on this independent label that ultimately tanked. And it's available everywhere online, the Chesterfield's Henry Street Soul. But, man, I'm super proud of that record. And I was 22, 23. Right. You know, I'm singing on it, playing guitar. I wrote all the songs, some of them with Sean, some of them by myself. So that was like my first record. And we did it, you know, 48-track, 2-inch tape, knee yeah. desk, you know, the whole fucking thing. Oh, dude, that's, that feeling is the best. Like, I remember making my first re real record. Like, I made a few in Florida, you know, on – First one was on ADATS, I remember that for sure, which, man, it's the worst-sounding record I've ever heard, maybe ever. But I was 13 at the time. But the first time I got to go to Ardent in Memphis and work on a real record, like with Jim Gaines as a producer, and, yeah, Neve Desk and Studers, and it was like, okay, this is, I get it now. Like, this is, I'm supposed to be here. This is where I want to be, at least, you know. That's such a great feeling. Yeah, Ardent is, Ardent is like a temple, man. I mean... Shit, yeah. I mean, ZZ Top, Stevie Ray, In Step, you know? I mean, that's a great fucking studio. Dude, it's a great, it's a great studio. And, and Jim, I was, I was so excited because he had done In Step and all that, and, and Santana, and even, I mean, even as an engineer, he had done a ton of records I'd listened to back when he was in San Francisco. But, yeah, man, that's, that's a great feeling. So, okay, so then what's the next 
like progression when does that band wind down and you kind of start you know doing more whatever the gigs that come in you know because i know that same process like where when you kind of stop doing your own thing a little bit and you start taking this gig and this gig and this gig and next thing you know a few years goes by and you've you've found fallen into like this new thing you know yeah well i i definitely my my 20s were kind of a a very a very a lot of very tough lessons you know and you know i mentioned in passing meeting ahmed erdogan at terra blues i mean i went up to his office at atlantic a couple times and he was so supportive of me and he tried to get me signed he tried to get tommy lapuma to do a record on me then russ Teitelman tried to do a record on me but we could never get enough financing to do what everybody envisioned every producer who would find me they had a different vision for me and it was unfortunately something that would have been done in la in the 70s it wasn't something that was practical anymore um so now we're in the early 2000s and Sean Dixon and I were basically the Chesterfields. It was basically the two of us. We were the songwriters, arrangers, right. band leaders. And I decided it was going to be a lot easier. I was hearing music in my head that Sean wasn't hearing. And I was also, I've also always played bass and drums. I've always had a drum set and a bass. And I decided I wanted to make a record with Charlie Martinez, who I'm still working with. In fact, he's working for Little Feet now, too. Um, you know, Charlie's just a couple years older than me, but an absolutely brilliant engineer and producer. And um, Charlie's worked with, you know, everyone from Don Was and Keith Richards to, he was with Steely Dan for a long time. He still works for Donald Fagan. Um, so he's been, he's been doing all that stuff simultaneously to whatever I've been doing. And the point of that is that Charlie had all this incredible recording gear and we put it in a, above a garage in Cold Spring, New York, uh, just up the Hudson River. And what I was doing was, is I was literally doing sideman gigs where I was doing fly dates with people and, you know, whatever pickup session work was left and like fucking playing weddings. And, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, then I would go on any off days that Charlie or I had, we would go up to Cold Spring, we'd take the train up or ride in, ride in his car up there. And then I'd spend, you know, a few days playing drums and bass and guitar and writing and playing. And I made my first two solo albums in that studio. So that wow. was Dawnbreaker and Analog Monologue. And Dawnbreaker, the first one I got, uh, my, my good buddy and one of my favorite musicians of all time, Charlie Drayton, played drums on a couple tunes. And I even got, and Sean Dixon I had come and play with Charlie because we all like playing together a lot. Um, and Sean also plays bass, so they're both mm -hmm. multi-instrumentalists. But most of that record, I played everything on it. And then Analog Monologue, I played everything on it and I didn't like how the drum sounds were going and I, I gave it to Sean Pelton. He played drums on that. So mm. that was like my 20s was spent basically working on those records, to be honest with you. It was those. And then Anti Up was the last one. That was, that was right when I had joined Greg Allman. So that was like mm. 2007 or 8 we recorded that record. And for that record, I had a band and we actually went to Cleveland and did it in a real studio. But, you know, my 20s, man, were just lost. I mean, I was just fucking going from one dead end concept to another yep playing fucking wedding gigs they were the best wedding bands in new york so everyone in the band was like there's one band like half the band was rod stewart's band you know they're they're all incredible musicians yeah and you know we were making good money for for play, but literally bro i was like getting in a tux and at the time my wife was 
switching careers from photography to pastry and she had to go through pastry school. So I always say that weddings, you know, got my wife a great pastry degree <laughs> and it paid, paid for my little self-indulgent soul albums. But, you know, it wasn't really until when I was 30, when I hooked up with Greg, that things started to, you know, that yeah. whole trajectory started to change, you know. And how old were you when you got married? Oh, I was, it was right before Greg. So I guess I was 29. Okay. Okay. So to more towards the, uh, the end of the twenties. Cause yeah, my twenties were basically in service of nothing of my own. Basically. I, I was so burnt out from 14 till 22, basically of doing my own thing and being in a van and spending every cent on my own records and all that shit. And then I did, I got married and it was like, I, I just decided that's when we moved to LA and all I did was just play guitar as a side man. I just did sessions. I went on tour. I did whatever I could. And it was a good move, like, f for my family and to start a family and all that stuff. But, yeah, next thing I knew, I was 32, and I hadn't made a record, you know, in a million years. And for some reason, it was like, I don't know, the ball started to turn. I don't know why. I started to, like, get noticed again more as just a guitar player and less as, like, the artist I used to be, I guess. And that spurred me along to kind of get back into doing my own thing the way I am now. But, yeah, I, I lost 10 years just doing sessions and sideman stuff. That Not that I regret it because it made me a better musician and it, it helped my family, you know, and, and be, be whatever, sustainable now the way we are. But, but yeah, I, I sometimes wonder about those 10 years. <laughs> well, yeah, man, I mean, you're, you're a very rare talent in your ability to kind of like you're you're really 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 adept at switching um those roles um you know i i love i love your sideman stuff as much as your solo stuff and i think it's all great i mean your stuff with Raphael alone man i mean he's such a great musician it says a lot that he would choose you to play with him but i mean i think you really up each other's game you know that's a great collaboration thanks man that was that was a gig that i was really like you know i'd been out here a while already and when i got that gig it was like oh this is actually really enjoyable like it was it was the first one that was like oh i want to be doing this like and i'm staying on this gig as long as i can because yeah like you said he's a really talented guy he's a great guy too and that that band are probably my best friends still to this day i mean those are my brothers and the best times i've ever spent on the road were in in that band for sure like that's that's great music and great times Man, oh, I, right. I don't know how that, I don't know how that Stone Rowan record wasn't the biggest thing of that year, man. That thing should have won like a few Grammys. I, I have no idea how. I yeah, Stone Rowan is a weird one. If you, I like Stone Rowan a lot, a lot. Don't get me wrong, but if he would have followed up the way I see it with something half half as much likes the way I see it. It could have still been like Stone Rolling, but a, just a little bit more still of the Motown thing, I think he would have continued. But that's not him, man. He just does what he wants to do and what he likes and what he hears. and you know. But definitely the, the train was going with the, the Motown-y stuff, and he kind of veered away from it slightly. But it is a great record. Yeah, it's, you're, you're right about that. In terms of like a, if he could have put out another one that used that sonic palette, I think what really hit me about that record was, I mean, he's always got a great songwriting technique to him, um, especially for R&B. I think he's just, he's just classic, man. Yeah. 
but the sound of that record was such a nice it, yes. it fit in such a nice pocket um it, it was original but it was retro and it's kind of like the thing you always see like a million bands trying to do that and when i heard it i was like oh shit he's done it <laughs> yeah well it was funny at that time there was a lot of that coming out obviously there was you know this huge groundswell of like you know retro sounding stuff amy winehouse and and the dap kings and all that stuff and yeah i mean he was the one who could do it without he wasn't trying like he just could do it you know what i mean like he knew how to do it and it was very very effortless for him and i felt like he was the one writing like real songs that could have actually been <laughs> hits in the 60s you know what i mean at least to me that's how it seemed when I first heard it, and that's if you if you're if you're wondering how I got the call, that's why I got the call. You know, he was putting together a band to do that type of stuff, and out here, I guess I have somewhat of a reputation for knowing those kind of tunes and those kind of guitar styles relatively well. So he got my number from somebody, and that's why I got that phone call. Wow. Well, I was so excited when I got to hear you guys together, man. I watched a bunch of YouTube videos of you guys performing. I never got to see the band live, but man, it, yeah. it was, I just thought it was just such a, such a killer project. And the, li the live thing just took it to a whole nother, as it should, just took it to a whole nother place. Yeah, it was a great band for sure. Really great band. Yeah. All right. So, so at this point, then you've, you've released your solo records, you get married and then you start to play with Greg, um, how did you did you even meet Greg? I have an interesting Greg story. I'll tell you at the end. But uh, how did you meet him the first time? And uh, <laughs> if you're going to tell me, a, if you're going to tell me a Greg, if you're going to tell me a Greg story, you got to tell me first if it's sober Greg or not. <laughs> it's not sober Greg. No, it's not sober. Greg. <laughs> no. yeah. Of course, of course, it's not. It never is. Yeah. Um, I met I met sober Greg, in uh, so I never knew the Greg before sober Greg in. Uh, right uh let's see what was it so that was summer of 2008 it was august 2008 so my buddy jay collins had been playing saxophone in the band for many years mm -hmm. and jay has been on the new york scene for like 30 years he's still actually i have a gig with jay tomorrow of all things it's funny <laughs> nice um he's one of my best friends and jay's in little feet too which is also mm -hmm. a hilarious coincidence um but you know jay was telling me for years that greg wanted to make a change in the guitar chair and they had a great guitar player but the guy was just not the right style he was he was just more on the rock than the blues side if you know exactly what i'm talking about but yeah it's just yeah. It wasn't the right fit for what greg wanted um and basically jay was telling me this is like my waiting for godot story you know when i was 27 <laughs> i started playing with jay and Jay's like, I'm going to get you an audition with Greg next month. And that went on for like three fucking years. So yeah, right. I got to the point where I was just like, this is never going to happen. So I got it out of my head and I just got busy. So meanwhile, Jay and I are doing a bunch of other gigs. He got me a couple of recording sessions with Levon Helm. You know, mm -hmm. we were doing a bunch of cool shit together around here. And then one day I was living in Brooklyn at the time. Jay calls me and he goes, all right, Scott, listen, the Almond Brothers are playing in Camden, New Jersey tonight. I need you to meet me on the turnpike. I'm going to drive you to the gig. I got us cleared to get in with one car and two passes, and I'm going to get you on stage to sit in. So it was literally the day of the show. So I had a gig that night that I canceled, right? I subbed it out. I, got, I met up with Jay. Jay drove me to Camden, which is about two hours from New York City. 
And we get in the venue and he takes me right to Greg Allman's dressing room. First time meeting everybody, Warren Haynes, Derek, O'Teal, Butch, J-Mo, yeah. the whole nine. So I'm meeting everybody. You know how those cats are. They're all super yes. cool. Reminds yeah. me a lot of when I was a kid hanging out with the older blues and jazz guys. Like everyone knows, everyone is no bullshit. It's just yeah. totally like, yo, what's up? You know? So I get to Greg's dressing room and obviously with Greg, there was always that certain sort of air of royalty about him when you first meet him. And, and you, when you meet someone as iconic as Greg Allman is in rock and roll, you have this moment where you can just melt into the floor and be, just be a total idiot about it. Or you can just be like, yo, what's up? Are you in the Bobby Bland's guitar player, Wayne Bennett? And that was the first thing we talked about. Nice. I like that. So, and, and, and Greg started it because when I came in, Greg's like, hey, Scotty. And I'm like, Greg, what's up, man? What are, you, wh what are you listening to lately? And he's like, oh, man, I'm still on Bobby Bland. He's like, you know all those Wayne Bennett licks on the Bobby Bland records? And I said, Greg, of course I know Wayne Bennett. I said, you know, it's like Stormy Monday Blues. I'm like, That's, that was one of your templates, right? He's like, oh, yeah, man. He's like, I'm so glad you know Wayne. And he's like, all right. And then next <laughs> thing I know, I was on stage playing with him. And and then after the gig, he came up to me and he's like, you got the gig, man. I'll see you in, I'll see you in Savannah in a couple weeks. <laughs> and then basically I went to the tour manager guy and I was like, what is this? And, and, and he's like, uh, you know, don't get your hopes up is Vid Sutherland, who has become honestly one of my gurus in the music business. But, you know, Vid old school, you know, kind of beat up my ego after that a little bit. And then... Greg had some health problems, which is, you know, how every Greg Holman story should start. Right. <laughs> but he, God love him, man. But he had some health problems, and the fall didn't happen, and the fall got pushed to winter. And then in December, we, I finally went to Savannah. And then the first guy to pick me up was the same road van manager, the man I love, Vid Sutherland. And he picked me up, and he says, he gets me in the car. He goes, I remember when Greg tried to change guitar players last year. I said, oh, yeah, Vid? I said, how did that go? He goes, guy was gone after the first day. I wouldn't unpack. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I get, so the next day I get to the audition. Well, I, well, I'm seeing it as the audition. Greg was like, we're rehearsing, man. You're in the band. So I get in there, and I'm trying to think of it as an audition because I don't want to get too cocky because I'm getting right. all this heat from Vid. So I get in there, and there's, bro, the band was Steve Potts on drums from Booker T and the MGs. Yeah. Jerry Jamat on bass, Bruce Katz from Ronnie Earl and the Broadcasters on piano. I mean, these are like my favorite musicians. Yep. Jay, Floyd Miles, you know Floyd. Yeah. Well. On percussion and vocals. So I get in there and I'm like, holy fucking shit. Like, this is, this is an amazing band. I have got to do this. <laughs> so, and then we got to the end of the first day and, you know, and Greg was just so cool and so, so kind and like, and and very straightforward and honest and like it was just not bullshit like i didn't i didn't feel like um i felt like family from day one that's how he made me feel and then vid of course at the end of that was like well i guess you got the gig then <laughs> <So, laughs> i unpacked my bag <laughs> nice man that's such a such a great story i can't imagine like you know crossing that threshold of like oh i'm in i'm in here now and then finally like just playing and relaxing uh, you know that's a it's got to be such a cool feeling to like be accepted <laughs> yeah 
Yeah, and the coolest part was like I remember the first song we played was just a shuffle, man, and it was like yeah. that groove, man, and just playing with those guys and Greg singing and getting to play off his voice. I mean, it was just it was cloud nine, man. And then you know the first gig we played, there's two thousand people, and yeah. you know we're playing Stormy Monday for ten minutes. It's like, does yeah. it get any better than this? It's like how many times have I played this fucking song in an empty bar with fucking Sam yep. Lay? And now yeah. it's like I'm actually able to do this and like yeah. feed my family potentially. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing feeling. That was the best thing about Greg. You know, he was he was the real shit, man. He was that guy was just he was beautiful, man. We had we had such a great time, man. I, I miss him every day. I think about him all the time. So I mean, I didn't really know him. I was lucky enough to cross paths with that whole family a lot because I'm from Florida. And Derek and I knew have known each other since we were little kids and played together so much. Um, and, you know, the Allman Brothers are freaking like a religion in Florida. So it's like I was around it a lot. I'd see him a lot. And I played with Derek a lot. And so here's my little story. So around 95, maybe, Washburn was getting really deep with the Allman Brothers. They had made Greg this Melissa acoustic <laughs> guitar. With those slats yes. on it, said Melissa on the neck. And they were like, any Allman Brothers connection with Washburn guitars was a thing. And so they made Derek a guitar. But they also, for some reason, sought me out, I guess, because I was getting well-known in Florida as a kid. And they made me a guitar. And then they were going to have this big show at the NAMM show, one of the nights, uh, for all their new guitars and stuff. And they wanted me and Derek to play together as the young guys. You know what I mean? So they flew us out. Um, to LA and we go to this rehearsal studio it was probably SIR I probably didn't know what that was at the time but you know now I've been there 8 million times but whatever we go to SIR and I know Derek we're friends so we've known each other already for years so we're hanging out uh, the bass player is Joe Perry's son this guy named Adrian Perry because they wanted like this whole kid thing going on uh, the drummer was Butch Butch Trucks so it was Butch Trucks Adrian Perry me and Derek and Greg's going to sing the whole gig. That's the plan, right? So I'm like, okay, this is going to be cool. It's going to actually be my first time playing with Greg. Uh, and Derek's like, man, I, you know, Derek is not in the Allman Brothers yet. This is, we're still before that, you know. It's still Warren and Dickey. And anyway, so Greg shows up to SIR. I have some pictures of it, but he was wearing these, like, uh, remember those pants in the 90s? They were, like, drawstring, and they looked like zebra pants, like multicolored pants. He had those pants on and an Antone's tank top with Stevie Ray Vaughan on it. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Look at this. Look at this fucking Greg Allman. And he walks in. And I'm setting up my guitar. Uh, they had Randall amps because Marshall, I mean, uh, Washburn owned Randall at the time. So here I was with my Washburn plugging into these Randalls. And I had a fuzz face I used to use all the time back then, a regular one, a big, you know, a circle one. And I was putting it down on the floor, plugging in my pedals. And Greg walked up on the stage and he goes, uh, I don't need any pedals for my rig. I, I'm just going to plug straight in and only play acoustic. And I'm like, no, sir, those are for me. <laughs> I'm playing. My name's Josh. It's very nice to meet you. It's like, okay, that was it. That was my moment. So, yeah, we played. And, uh, he wasn't sober, and, but it was still a great experience. But I'll, I always tell everybody that story about, like, I was setting up the pedals for him. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, he probably he probably thought, you know, well this this they're setting me up, you know, as he walked in. That's yeah. crazy, yep. man. I mean, Thank you know, you. He, he, like I said, so, sober Greg was a was a different story. I mean, 
Greg, and to be fair, Greg was never actually technically sober. I mean, he was always smoking a pretty, uh, a, let's say, a Willie Nelson dose of marijuana. Right. right. But, uh, but you know, the the alcohol, I think, was really, really. It's a depressant, and I think it was really yeah. hard for him. Um, you know, I, I'm also sure with Greg, it's like. I don't think he ever got over losing his brother, man. I mean, it's something we used to talk sure. about all the time. And uh, as that connected to music, um, it was really interesting to be in his, you know, his, his band instead of his brother's band, as he used to say. Because, you know, in his band, it was like, uh, it was kind of like his playhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the brothers was like, it, it was almost like he saw it as a job to uphold, you know, his brother's vision. But... His band, he was so much more loose and, and he would sing for two hours. You know, it wasn't right. a thing where he was sharing the stage vocally with anybody and, and, it, and it was his vision and he was, he was a different person um, when it was his band than any other situation I would see him in because he was so comfortable with all of us. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I, I remember seeing him once on his own gig and he had, maybe it was before you joined the band in the interim, he did a tour with Robin playing guitar. I remember seeing that. Oh, dude, I have. Oh, yeah. I have all those recordings of, of yeah. that tour. That was, that was the only Greg Allman band stuff I studied besides the Dan Toller yeah. stuff. Yeah. It was Dan and Robin. And I, man, I told Robin, I was hanging out with him in Nashville last year. And I told, I finally got to tell him, I said, man, I said, I got to thank you for a few ideas that I took to play with Greg because there were things he was doing on some of those tunes that, that no one had done before, especially tunes like, like multicolored lady. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some of the more ballad stuff, there were some pedal steel type stuff and some sus voicing shit that he was putting in there. It was just gorgeous, man. And I, I Neil Larson was the band leader at that time. Mm -hmm. Cause I ended up becoming the music director of the band for the last, right five years of the band but 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 neil was the was the md when I, I neil and i missed each other unfortunately because i i fucking love neil but we 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 weren't in the band at the same time it was bruce katz and i at first and then eventually right. pete levin but um on keys but neil was the guy who brought in robin okay that makes sense yeah man dan toller that's a blast from the past i used to play with him quite a bit in florida growing up as a kid yeah. That's that's a gift, man. I mean, that guy's one of the greatest ever. Yeah, yeah. him and his brother. It was it was always cool. We'd play, especially in Sarasota. It was always Sarasota with all the Allman Brothers stuff and connections. Always Sarasota. <laughs> Floyd Miles too. Yeah, all Sarasota. Yeah. Yeah. All right, dude. Let's let's uh, get into my my ten questions here because we started to talk about some of the things already. So I don't want to give away the answers. <laughs> all right. All right. Number one, when you started learning and playing, you, you already talked about the Jimmy Reed, but I'm always curious, what's the first thing that when you got it under your fingers, there was like that moment of pride of like, I can't believe I pulled this off. And it sets that hook, you know, like, oh, no going back. This is it. Like, this is, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. Well, the Jimmy Reed is definitely the big bang for me. Yeah. Uh, after that, it's probably like uh... – you know, like, I don't know, like. <laughs> like, once I got that. Nice. Oh, Carol. Yeah. 
That was probably the O'Carroll was probably number two. And I'm sure I didn't know what the fuck I was playing when I learned. <laughs> wow. Man, that O'Carroll is is killer, of course. An amazing one. Man, that feeling when like you've listened to something so many times and then it finally comes out of your hands is like <laughs> there's nothing yeah. like it, you know? It's just you 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 can't go backwards. It's like, man, this uh, now you play guitar, that's it. It's like yeah, it's such a special thing. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Oh. Dude, what's the first solo that you ever cared enough to learn note for note? Like you had to learn it. Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, the first, the first, well, I mean, I don't know if that's a solo. I mean, it was a couple of the Chuck Berry things, but mm -hmm. it wasn't the whole thing. So let me think. Uh, Clapton Crossroads, the, the live version with Cream. Yeah. Yeah. They're not the first person to say that. And it's, a, I mean, it's such an iconic solo. Um, now, can you remember it by heart now for the rest of your life? I'm not asking you to play it. I'm just saying, like, I remember. Oh, like, I can play it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'll never forget yeah. those things, those solos, like the ones you, you take the time to learn that because they just blow your mind. It's like, I, yeah, any Stevie thing, like, I'll, I'll remember every solo note for note for the rest of my life. And I can go five, ten years between playing it, and it'll still come out like, like nothing, you know? Well, you mentioned in step to me, that's, that's, that's Stevie Ray Vaughan's Mona Lisa for the guitar solos. I mean, he put a lot of work, he was sober and he put a lot of work under that record. And, and yeah. I saw him on that tour. I was oh, 10, wow. 11 years old and I fucking saw it. Jeff Beck came out first. He played, I turned to my dad. I said, it doesn't get any better than that. We should just leave. Stevie Ray Vaughan's going to embarrass himself. My dad's like, we're waiting. We're going to watch Stevie Ray Vaughan. See, Ravon came out, he got the end of the first song, and I turned to my dad and I said, that's what I want to do with my life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, and as much as I love and adore Jeff Beck to this day, and I think he's a fucking wizard, as a, as a kid, the energy, the shamanistic energy coming off <laughs> Stevie was something I will never forget. And I, I've experienced it many times since. I saw Ray Charles live, Al Green, you know, Elvin Jones. There's certain people I've seen who had that, but he had that metaphysical shamanistic energy about yeah. him especially when he hit the sobriety you know yeah man i i tell people that all the time about him as much as the playing and the music is a huge influence on me the biggest thing about finding him and first seeing it you know on for me it was on video was was the energy it was just the oh my god he literally it looks almost like he has to do this or he would die you know, like, and that's the way I want to feel. Like, I have to do that. And it, that was always what made the biggest impression on me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, that's cool you got to see him. I wish I could have. I, I turned down the chance. I, I didn't really know what I was turning down. But on that Jeff Beck tour, my dad, I think, asked if I wanted to go. And, I, you know, I was nine years old. So I, I think I just didn't know what I was answering yet. Who knows? <laughs> sounds, like we were sounds like we were both afraid of the truth. <laughs> probably probably i i stayed just by hair i wanted to leave i was already there but i i tell you what man I'll, I'll never forget that feeling i'll never forget it i can i can still feel even though i was way in the back i can still feel the sound coming at me it was something <laughs> else man that's awesome man Ugh. all right number three what's the first thing you play every time you pick up a guitar Do your hands just go somewhere the blues yeah. Anything in specific, though? 
No, the blues is all that matters, man. As long as it's, it's like, to me, to me, it's like, as soon as I pick up a guitar, what I, what I like about the guitar is like the first position, you know? That's how I make sure a guitar is in tune. But for yeah. me, it's got to be a seventh. It's got to start with a seventh. And then yeah. I could go anywhere from there. Um, but to me, that whether it's, you know, whether it's fucking Chuck Berry or Pink Floyd, if it doesn't have blues, I don't even want to hear it, you know? Okay, so if you're in a music store and you want to check out a guitar, is that also the first thing you play to, like, check, check <laughs> its tuning, check <laughs> and see how it feels? Yeah. Probably, I'm always curious what yeah. guys play to get a feeling for a guitar and see if they like it. And sometimes you play different things to see if this guitar can even handle this or will do that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Well, I know you've done this a bunch, but like Carter, you know, Carter Vintage, I've done a couple sessions for them. You know, uh -huh. the thing where you're sitting there and they're like, oh, yeah, this is worth 60 grand. And then they give you another one and you play them. And you're 100% right about that. Every one they hand me, I'll play something different. You know, sometimes, sometimes I might end up playing some Lightning Hopkins finger picking shit. And then sometimes I might end up playing rhythm changes. Yeah. I mean, I don't really have any rules about style per se, but. And you're right, you know, certain guitars and setups and string height, gauge, tension, amp, there's a lot of factors that can take you in different directions, you know, if you're open to it, you know. Oh, yeah. Even even stupid visual cues, I mean, you can't help but if someone hands me a freaking L5, even before I hear it, maybe it has terrible pickups that aren't really that dark. Still, the first thing I'm going to play is going to be some Wes Montgomery type thing or whatever, you know, it's where my mind goes. If someone hands me a Strat... Before I even turn it in, I'm thinking about Stevie Ray Vaughan and Jimi Hendrix and Curtis Mayfield and whatever. You know what I mean? So it's like it's mental, too. It's not even just sometimes a guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. All right. Well, that's good. Good answers. Uh, number four. What key, style, song, groove, whatever, do you hear like when you're just like doing nothing? When you're driving the car, when you're cooking eggs, whatever. Do you have like a narration? I hear a shuffle all the time. I hear an improv, like kind of Charlie Parker-ish, like a B-flat swinging improv. That's just what I hear 24 hours a day. You have something like that? Thank God, no. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have like, it's, it's I, I'm pretty much in the off position or in the intake position until a song comes to me. And that, my, my antenna... My daily antenna is tuned to songwriting and riffs and chord progressions and lyrical ideas. The, the thing of improvising, I take that sort of by osmosis. So pretty much I always have music on. And I would say these days, especially 99% of it is not what I play. So it's a lot of Indian classical music, um, classical piano music, um, you know, uh, world music, I guess you would call it. So all kinds of reggae, dub reggae. Um, I love all that, like African blues shit, like Ali Farka Torre and like sure. those, those fucking crazy, amazing bedwooden guitar player shit. Like that's like mainly what I listen to when I put music on. Um, and then if I want to hear what I, what I try to do, I'll usually just throw on WWOZ, especially as an advertisement eight o'clock Monday through Friday is like, it's like that radio show. You know, when I was a teenager going down South from the Midwest and you find that fucking radio station and every song is like, yes, what is this? 
Yeah. You know? So that's the other thing I listen to. But otherwise, no, I don't really, I don't really have an improvisation network going in my head. But if I did, it would probably be Johnny Guitar Watson playing a solo over and over again. <laughs> well, okay, so that addendum to that question. When, something in, when you're in the car and you're listening to the radio uh, and something comes on you don't know, right? Like some piece of music just comes on you've never heard before. What are you hearing in there? I'm try, I've been lately trying to kind of take stock of what's the first thing I hear whenever I listen to any music, whether it be a new melody on top or a counterpoint or uh, syncopated, just like a rhythmic thing over the top, or maybe I am hearing an improvisation. Do you ever notice, like, what's the first thing you kind of start hearing? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I, in terms of, like, what I would add to it, um, I don't even know if it's what be... you would add to it. It's just, yeah. I've been trying to like key myself into like, where does my brain go? What am I really like thinking, hearing when I'm listening to something I've never heard before? It's been an interesting like exercise because it's different on every piece of music. My brain just goes right to something, you know, and starts making something happen over the top of some piece of music I've never heard before. And I'm curious, like I, it's a it's a great. I mean, that's a great exercise. I'm gonna have to do that. And get back to you. I I may be, I may be not, haven't haven't tried to tune in on that. I suppose I have that brain too. That, and you know all about this too very well. Is like that sort of producer studio musician brain that I have to use all the time. Like I I do tracks for people all the time. Yeah. So maybe I'm just you know maybe I've just been too far down the rabbit hole with segmenting my brain. But that's a great, I mean, that's a great exercise, like, just to understand, maybe I would think of that, like, in terms of arranging, you know, what, mm -hmm. what, what grabs me first, the bass line, you know, the, the guitar part, the vocal, the lyric, I don't know, maybe that's the way I hear it. That's possible. But I'd have I to think, think about I, that and get back to you. I sometimes think that same way, too. And, and sometimes I think of it purely as like a session guitar player, too. Like, and and it's, again, it's, I'm not doing it on purpose. But yeah, sometimes I'll hear music. And I'll think of it the same way I hear it when I'm setting up at a studio, getting ready to play on it. And it's like, what should I play on this? You know, like, what can I add to this that's going to make it right or add something? And it, yeah, it's weird. You know, I, instead of like thinking just about what I would want to play or whatever, I've been trying to just take note of what am I really hearing the second a piece of music comes on? What's just the unfiltered thought? You know, and it's been interesting kind of taking note of that. Oh, yeah, man, that'll definitely help you know, zero in on, zero in on, you know, playing, playing what you hear as opposed to playing until you play what you hear. You know yeah. what I mean? And that's an obsession for me. Like I'm always trying to remove as much filter as possible so that like what I'm hearing is just coming out without thinking, you know what I mean? And, you know, as much as I can strengthen that bond, that, that is, it's an obsession for me. That's great, man. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Well, cool. Uh, number five, when did you feel like you maybe started to find your own voice on the instrument? Was there a moment when you wrote something or even just played something and it clicked? Or maybe someone even from the outside told you, hey, man, that thing you're doing there or that song, you're, I really like that. Maybe you should go further down that path. Do you remember any moments like that? Man, I'll, I'll let you know when I find it. <laughs> I'm still looking, bro. I, I haven't, I, I haven't gotten there. I mean, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a really tricky thing, especially these days, because you gotta, 
you got to contextualize what we're dealing with as musicians where we're we're living and I, I don't mean this to be in a in a dark way. I just want it to be sort of let's let's deal with the reality. We're not living in the zeitgeist anymore, right? So <laughs> we're we're post Renaissance is what we are. So yep. so how do we and this is one of the things that that by the way, I really you know, and this, this, this is why, you know, the reason I'm on your show is because I watch your stuff and I, I really, I admire how you figured out how to sort of protect tradition and push the boundaries. But then also, you know, you go into the guitar world, but it's not, it's still music, you know? So it's like, that's, and I feel like our age has a lot to do and, and the similarities with our upbringing has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, I'm doing the same thing. And we're the lucky ones. We're the survivors. When yes. you think about other people in our age group who aren't diversified like this, I mean, they're driving Ubers now, pretty much. Yes. Yep. You know, so, so, I mean, that's a tragic part of this. But all this shit, it happened, to, it happened to classical music. It happened to jazz. You know, what we're participating with True Fire in, which I think they're just phenomenal company, and they've been so supportive of both of us, especially yep. during this, and I love them, and I love the way they do the content. I think it's the best in the business. But at some point, we're going to have to completely institutionalize, you know, playing rock and roll, blues, soul, all, everything that's not jazz and classical in the way that Wynton Marsalis has. Um, and that's kind of what we're dealing with. So in terms of having an original voice, to get back to your question, like how original is Wynton Marsalis's voice or Yo-Yo Ma's voice? I mean... That's kind of where we're at at this point. Um, so I try to answer your question. I try to refine uh, the teachings I continue to get. And I, I, I've been in this weird position where I keep ending up in my favorite bands of all time. So <laughs> with Little Feet now, I'm the new singer, guitar player, songwriter for Little Feet. And I'm talking to Bill Payne every day and we're writing songs and I'm cutting tracks for them now. And we would have already done a summer tour by the time I'm talking to you now and going on our next one. Um, but those guys are playing better than ever and they're in their 70s and they're writing incredible shit. And we just got Tony Leone on drums, who's just, you know, one of my, one of my best friends and just an unbelievable musician. And the whole thing is just elevating so much and these guys are my dad's age but the thing is is i'm again like i was with greg writing writing all those tunes with greg and leading his band with him with bill it instantly became a partnership and it just shows me that i'm always going to be tethered to the renaissance i'm always going to be carrying van gogh's easel into the sunflower field for him <laughs> you know i don't I, I don't think i'm ever going to be van gogh you know but i can learn whatever i can by standing next to him and doing some pieces with him and trying to understand how the paints mix and and i look at it as like oil painting is not what it used to be but if you were a guy who did that with van gogh you'd be one of the experts on oil painting and oil painting wouldn't be changing the world the way sergeant pepper did anymore but it would be doing something for humanity the way yo-yo ma and Whitten marcellus do and i think that's the best we can hope for i don't think originality is gonna happen for us but that's just you know that's just my revelations from the last few years <laughs> interesting interesting yeah it's weird you know the the personal voice thing for me i find i apply it to myself 
almost exclusively in my improvisation. I'm not as concerned about writing songs that are only like my own songs that don't have any like nod to other styles or songs that I've heard before. I, I don't worry about those type of concerns as much. It's more about the improv. I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, to make all the boats rise, man. I mean, when we, like I was saying before, to survive, we're so diversified. And yeah, we've had that to be. just, it, exactly. And, and you know who told me I was going to have to do that when I was 21 was Ahmed Erdogan. He yeah. told me, he said, I will give you, a, I will paraphrase what he said to me in our first hour long meeting in his office. He said to me, he said, Scott, these idiots downstairs who are running Atlantic Records, all they care about is getting a bonus and buying another house. They don't know anything about being a tastemaker or what it is to be a tastemaker. And he said, if you want to survive and make your art, he said, I can hook you up with all these different people and I guarantee you that nobody is going to do the right thing about you, for you or for your type of artistry but you. So you're going to have to write, sing, play better than everybody else if you can or as good as you can and you're going to have to be a sideman, you're going to have to co-write for people, you're going to have to go on the road with other people and you're going to have to do your own thing because he said yeah. no one downstairs at that time we were in the time warner building the old one you know downstairs in the atlantic records offices is going to take a chance on you because they need a they need a hit now so they can get a bonus yeah yeah and it's i mean it is it's generational and it, and that's sad it's like you know larry carlton didn't like decide to be Larry Carlton, the artist. It was like, you know, he just became Larry Carlton, the artist because of what he was already doing. And it was like, you know, Quincy Jones, you know, it'd be a re realistic, uh, I mean, a completely unrealistic goal now to want to be like the next Quincy Jones. It's not even possible. You know what I mean? Like, but I, I have many friends who was like, they thought that's what they'd do with their life. They'd be Larry Carlton or Mike Landau or, or, or they'd be a producer like Quincy Jones or whatever. Or they'd get themselves in a band and have magic happen. So they'd be Neil Schoen and all of a sudden write all these tunes and be set for the rest of their life, like the guitar player in Journey or whatever. And, dude, those things are just don't exist. It's literally they well, don't exist. Well, that, that just goes back to my original point about this Jazz at Lincoln Center lifestyle. I mean, you remember when, when Winton, I mean, we were really young, but when Winton really got wind in his sails with jazz at lincoln center it was all about the fact that he wanted to have a big band and no one wanted to pay for it yep. so they literally had to institutionalize big bands to keep them alive mm. and there are people out there doing great shit i mean look at um look at to pimp a butterfly i mean look, mm. look at that record and those thundercat those musicians who participated in that and yep. that's a huge commercial critical success the childish gambino record that last record of his was a phenomenal fucking record. Um, you know, there's a bunch of great shit being made that's making money. Um, I'm just talking about, you know, the stuff that we grew up playing, um, especially like the rock and roll, the real rock and roll shit, which is basically all blues based. So all the blues, all the really blues based music with old tube guitars, amplifiers and, you know, PAF pickups and, B3 organs and drums and bass, you know, approaching music that way, it exists, but it's, you're not going to change music with it anymore. You know, nope. it's just, it's now it's a thing like Yo-Yo Ma playing Bach cello suites. And 
I guarantee you, if Yo-Yo Ma wrote an album of new original music, it would not sell the way him doing a Bach cello suite show would. And I guarantee you, every year, he's got to teach, he's got to play the cello suites, and then he can do his shit. It's the same thing for us now. Yep, absolutely. 100%. Ugh. All right, number six. What do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Oh, my God. How, long, how much longer do we have? <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Uh, wow. Um, like, what's kryptonite for you? Oh, anything fast. I, I, don't, I can't play anything that's fast. Like, especially being, you know, I've been in New York for, oh, my God, how many years have I been here? 20, almost 23 years. So, like, New York is all about the jazz, right? It's about jazz and hip-hop. That's New York. If you, had yep. to, if you had to sum it up, punk rock, it used to be about, it's not about anymore, but it's really jazz and hip-hop at this point, and particularly jazz. And that fast bebop shit, anything that's fast with the spangalang, I can't play it. Like, I can't hear it. Now, if it's any of the older, you know, 50s, 60s jazz I'm down with all that, but when the but, but but like when Bird got really fast in the '50s and shit, I just can't I can't hear or '40s I can't hear that shit. I can't play anything fast. <laughs> Interesting, because I mean you play fast enough. <laughs> well, I can play fast over a certain tempo, but when the when the beats per minute of the band gets to a certain point, yeah. I just can't hear it anymore. And I have friends, and I say this because I have friends like my friend Brian Charette, who's just unbelievable fucking organ player and one of my best friends for 22 years since I moved to New York and Brian he can play these tempos that are just I can't even hear the fucking quarter or the eighth or even the 16th note and the shit he plays is just gorgeous um I've heard I've heard um I've heard Kurt Rosenwinkel do shit like that I've heard a lot of musicians who can do Brad Meldow I've heard do shit he doesn't do it as much anymore but years ago you know those guys man I when I hear that I'm just like how are they making this feel good? I just don't know how to make fast stuff feel good. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. All right. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, okay, number seven. Who's a huge influence on your guitar playing that people would be surprised to hear? Hmm. Miles Davis. I don't know if that would be surprising or not, but, um, you know, he's, he's my favorite instrumentalist of all time i mean I'd, ha I'd say for me my greatest inspirations overall it's a tie between miles and hendrix um mm -hmm. but miles for that for that voice i mean as an instrumentalist i just don't think there's i mean besides you know louis armstrong i don't think there's anybody who has a fingerprint like that you know there's like louis bb king miles they're just, that's the ultimate goal for all of us. I mean, if you want to talk about getting your own sound, yes. that's the thing where, you know what I mean? Like, I, at Miles, I mean, every time I put on Miles Davis and I hear him play one fucking note, I just feel like it's all I want to hear for the rest of my life. There's yeah, so much truth in every move. Yeah. So that's my greatest, my greatest improvisation inspiration. But I've, I've got, like you, you know, I've got many, 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 influences i could go all day but that's the one i always come back to you know well you could do worse <laughs> yeah oh all right number eight and everybody's answer to this has been different would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp or vice versa 
a great amp and a shitty guitar on a gig situation? Uh, 100,000% a great guitar and a shitty amp. <laughs> so we're opposite on this, but tell me why. The PV Bandit. Yeah, I mean, I played PV Bandits all through high school. I hate them. <laughs> no, but I'm just, I'm just going to say, like, I had, you know, I had it. This is, this is a cool story on that. All the motherfuckers, the best guitar players in Milwaukee when I was a kid, Stokes being the best of all of them. Stokes was our local hero. He just passed away. Mary rest in peace last year. Mm -hmm. But man, Stokes was, was my mentor. I played drums in his band. I played guitar in his band. I would fucking carry this guy's equipment anywhere. All he ever played was a PV Bandit with 115 straight into it, but he had a fucking 1960 335, all original. Mm. And man, that, I can hear that tone right now in my head, and it's just fucking perfect. <laughs> so that's the only reason I say that is because... That has inspired me over the years that when I get a bad amp, at least I know if I have, because to me, for me personally, it's like I, I've, I've, I use a lot of pedals to control stage volume or sometimes do effects, but I've always been more, especially in the studio, straight into the amp. And, you know, I really feel that a guitar, electric guitar, is all about having a good setup and great fucking pickups. And I feel like if I have great pickups and a good setup, I can make something work as long as there's enough headroom for the style of music. Now, see, that's where that question gets funny, right? Because the headroom thing is major. Like, if you're talking about me playing a five watt champ with a seven, eight piece rock band, of course, that's a major fucking problem, right? Mm -hmm. I yep. mean, you can crank it through the monitor, but then you got to deal with that acid trip. So, <laughs> so you'd rather have your 335 and a JC 120 than like whatever guitar and a great super reverb or something. Yes, and that's because I was just in Holland and I got stuck with a, a, a goddamn 120. I did. Okay. And I had this guitar and I, made, and I had a couple pedals with me and I, it took an hour, but I made it work. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. See, for me, I'm always much more comfortable with whatever guitar, but an amp that even sounds like approximately like what I'm used to and has, again, the headroom is a very big part of it. I know that there'll be a better show for the audience with whatever guitar and my pedals and my amp as opposed to the other way around. If I take this guitar and then have to play the gig with a JC-120, I'll make it happen, sure, but I know it won't be as good a show as vice versa. I mean, my kryptonite is a rolling jazz course. I, oh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, unless you're going to play like you know, a Fela Kuti gig, you yeah. know, I, I have no idea what that amp is supposed to be used for. <laughs> I, I've never, yeah. I'm <laughs> in high school. Uh, this friend of mine. Well, yeah, it says jazz school, on it. <laughs> yeah, it says jazz on it. Yeah. yeah so they had one at, at the school. And so my friend liked it for some reason. And it came time for him to buy an amp for his first gigging band, which was by the way, like a hard rock band. He bought a JC one twenty. And he was playing oh, with no. all these Digitech pedals through it, and he couldn't understand why he couldn't get it to sound great. And I'm like, dude, it's the amp. It's not any of your guitars or your pedals. It's like take any other amp and you'll be fine. 
I was lucky. Someone steered me when I needed my first gigging amp, my step up from practice amp to an actual amp. Someone steered me in the music store to buying a used Silverface Pro Reverb. And it was the first real amp I ever got. And probably, it, it could be still the only amp I ever owned if I, if I would have been fine. You know what I mean? It was just a, a real working amp. Those are great amps. They're a dark horse, but they're, they're one of the great ones. Yeah, and it served me well for a long time. Yeah. 40 watts has always been that special, uh, special little area. It's like you got to have that. Yeah. Well, front of house is always going to hate us either way. Screw either them. way. Go for 100. Either way. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right, number nine. What keeps you motivated to keep improving and pushing ahead as a guitar player? Like, what keeps you working on new shit? Is it just, like, the writing and, and, and that stuff that informs your progression as a guitar player? Or do you still work on just guitar stuff? What keeps you going? Well, it's a lot of it has to do with, I mean, as far as my solo stuff goes, my, my solo efforts, and I mean, I, my fifth one came out a couple years ago, Saving Grace. I have the sixth one is in the can. I just, I was going to release it in the spring, and obviously we know what happened there. Yeah, um, there's no reason to release but, anything right now. <laughs> oh, no, of course not. I actually, I actually just got my first uh, major booking agent deal in March, too, and everybody got laid off at the company, so there you go. Yeah. Um, but basically, so, so, so what I've been doing with my own stuff is, you know, my original music is just wide open. So I, I don't answer to anybody. All my shit is self-released. I don't do it based on anything as, as far as genre. It would have to be called rock, but it moves, or Americana, but it moves in a lot of different directions. Um, and guitar-wise, you know, I'm constantly trying to collaborate and that's one of the you know one of my bucket list things is for us to to play together because you know i think we would we could do some really fun shit but i love playing with guitar players man like great guitar players and it teaches me so much and the last experience i had i was lucky to have is one of my favorites of all time is this guy who lives up here in woodstock dan littleton and um he has a, a band that does this actually for children's music. It's the best fucking children's music out there with his wife, Elizabeth. But, um, and they've been very successful with it. But he's just an amazing fucking guitar player. And when I say that, I mean, he's kind of like a combination of like, uh, it's almost like Sonny Sherrock, Neil Young, kind of, I mean, this guy's all pure instinct and just beautiful fucking ideas. And, that whole thing we were talking about, about only playing what you hear, I have never heard Dan Whittleton play anything that shouldn't be there. Um, he's so inspiring, man. Like, I, I can't tell you, like, people don't know it. I mean, it's a thing where I know him through Amy Helm, you know, Levon's daughter, and Amy's just an incredible artist, and he plays on her records, so you can hear, hear him on those. But, you know, Dan, the first time I heard him play, you know, he was opening for me or something at Levon's place. And I just, I lost my mind. I was like, you have to play with my band. Like you need to play with us. <laughs> I can't, I can't go on and not have you come back and play again. And Derek trucks had the same reaction with him. I mean, when Amy Helm opened for, for Derek and Susan, if you ask next time you see Derek, ask him why he, uh, why he got that, his first pedal of his career, that delay pedal. That's because of Dan. Cause Dan had an old echo plex. Um, and he's a big fan, so, so he has fans. But anyway, I got Dan to play on my new record, and we did, a, we did a tune where 
<laughs> we overdubbed on a track, but we set up in a room and we traded fours and eights. And man, it's like, I'm still on a cloud from that. Like I learned so much watching him, the way his hands move and stuff. And then the other thing is little feet. Like the first time I ever played slide was I tuned a strat up to open a and tried to sound like Will George. And now I'm back down that rabbit hole. So I've been That's doing cool. that for the last year. Yeah. You know, well, and that, I mean, even just learning the catalog, that's got to, it keeps you motivated and pushing forward for sure. Well, that's, I've been spending a lot of time on that and I've been writing for Little Feet too, which has been another interesting exercise because as they are probably my favorite rock band of all time is Little Feet, always has been. And well, George specifically uh, to what I do. And for me, it's been interesting to actually write songs for the band in the style of the band. That's been kind of my main exercise these days. That's a, it's a tough, like, charge, you know what I mean, to take that on. Like, okay, I'm going to write f for this band that I really care about. <laughs> and I have to write, like, in their style without being, like, you know, too on the nose and, like, tributing them in their own band. It's got to be an interesting thing, you know. Well... I tell you, man, I, I, I thank every day for my time with Greg Allman because writing songs with him and being in his band and that record Southern Blood that we, we managed to eke out, um, you know, that experience informs every step I'm taking with Little Feet. You know, yeah. it's like, and then also like Lee Von Helm, who, you know, I, I didn't get to play with him a lot, but I got to do a few sessions with him and I, I used to open for him at the Ramble. I, I subbed in the band. A couple times I played his last show with him at the barn uh, in the band subbing for Larry Campbell and uh, watching what those guys did and being part of what those guys did for his career with Dirt Farmer and Electric Dirt. Yeah. Um, those were great lessons for me to have for this experience with Little Feet because just watching, you know, how Larry Campbell, Jimmy Vivino and Levon did it and then watching Warren and Greg and then me coming into that spot with Greg and his band. So I feel like if any if anyone should have this job it's me i've got that on my side at least yeah. <laughs> you know i feel like i'm ready for the challenge you know yeah yeah you've got the unique work experience necessary to pull it off it's a bizarre resume but yes yeah. <laughs> it works out all right number 10 what's your five-year plan man where do you want to be is there something you really are trying to achieve that's like you won't rest until you you've you've hit that mark well, the five-year plan for me um, is, to, is to get Little Feet playing, headlining Jones Beach within the next two or three years. That's my plan. That's a good so one. My, my only – and because I already did it once with Greg Allman, I'm going to try to get lucky a second time. Because when I joined up with Greg, that band, the Greg Allman band, we were, we were on the casino road to doom. You know? Right. We yeah. were playing for four or 500 people a night. Greg was singing the best of his life. And I said to him, man, we got to do exactly what's in your head. And it took us a few years, but we finally figured it out. We got the right band. We got the right songs. We got the right show. We got the right crew. We had the right people, the right agent. And, you know, the last year, last summer of that band on the road, we played seven festivals where the Greg Allman band was the headliner. And most of them were sold out to several thousand people. And if he had lived another year or two, we would have gone right into that Allman Brothers spot. That's where the band was going. Um, so, I mean, that's what I really want to see 
with little feet. As far as for my solo band, I mean, I just, we, I remember having this conversation with you on the phone. I just have all these like random promoters who find me and clubs who find me. And we just end up playing like 60, 70 gigs a year. I don't know how it happens. I don't, you know, as I said, I was transitioning to having a, 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 a like a, a big agent. So that's still something that may happen. And I hope it does. And we'll see how my solo career progresses around that. But you know, um, my main focus is really, I'm in this band with, you know, I've been welcomed into the band as a band member and as a singer and songwriter. So my main goal in the next few years is to really relaunch this band that I love so much and I'm so excited about, and I just want to get a few years in with that band and keep this, I'll keep the solo thing going and, and see what happens. But, um, you know, as you know, with the solo thing, it's like touring, it's, it's, like I was saying to you earlier in the conversation, it's almost better if I just stay in the Northeast and don't go through the hassle of losing the money, you know? Yeah. That's a, a major frustration because it's like, I just want, I know there's people who care and want to see what I do and I can't get there without literally putting myself in not harm's way, but like distress slightly, you know? So that's all. Well, it's got a, it's got a price tag. It's, you know, a career, like to get a solo career going in the music business, it has a price tag first, and then it has to have a story. So yep. a lot of times, you know, it helps a lot to be the son of somebody, whether they be a famous musician <laughs> or actor or whatever it may be. And then if you are, it's, you've probably got the money to, to stick it out. And, yep. you know, even if you're only half as talented as whoever your mom or dad is, it's good enough for everybody to keep buying tickets for some reason. And yep. we're back at exhibit A, like I was saying to you before, people want to hear Beethoven's fifth. So if your name is Johnny <laughs> Beethoven, yeah. they're going to take their girlfriend to the show, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, am I going to go see this guy who's writing the most influential classical music around right now? Or am I going to go see, hey, it's Johnny Beethoven. Come on, honey, we'll buy tickets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, there you go. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know. I don't know where we go after that because you're right. Uh, <laughs> dude, thank you for doing this. It's been a pleasure. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day. That's the end of man, the 10 I, questions. I had so much fun. I had so I, much fun. You're great at this, man. You're like the, you're like the Mark Maron of guitar. <laughs> well, thanks, dude. And uh, for members, we're going to do our little turn to video, and we'll be right back. But if you're not a member, you should become one. So hit join or subscribe. There will be links to all things Scott Sherrard down in the bottom of this video. So make sure you buy his records, buy his True Fire, and support a real artist. But, dude, thanks for taking the time out of your day to do this. It's greatly appreciated. Man, it was a pleasure. My, my only regret is that we weren't actually able to play again. But I know it's going to happen. I can feel it. <laughs> it will. All right. We'll be right back. All right, bro. Thanks for having me.